What is happiness? It's the question, right? What is happiness and how do we get a little bit more of it? We live for it. Always searching, always striving, and no matter how much I seem to get, I always want just a little bit more. Well, let's look at one man's definition of happiness. Don Draper of Mad Men, that fictional advertising guru of the 1960s. In the following scene, he's trying to convince a company that they need him to be truly successful. And he appeals to that insatiable hunger for more. What is happiness? Let's watch. I want to talk about your business. What about it? See, I've been looking at what you're doing, and I think you're in desperate need of change. And you're just the guy to do it. I am. We're at 50% market share in almost everything we make. Because you have a big line of diverse and charismatic products, and you keep making more. Zip tape, styrofoam, Ravana. And why do you do that? Because even though success is a reality, its effects are temporary. You get hungry even though you've just eaten. At the old firm, we had London Fog raincoats. We had a year where we sold 81% of the raincoats in the United States. Name another raincoat. But we didn't stop working for them because 81% isn't enough. But it doesn't change the fact that we're happy with our agency. Are you? You're happy with 50%. You're on top and you don't have enough. You're happy because you're successful for now. But what is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. I won't settle for 50% of anything. I want 100%. You're happy with your agency? You're not happy with anything. You don't want most of it. You want all of it. And I won't stop until you get all of it. Thank you for your time. Did you catch it there, what he said? Uh, He said a few things there. He said, even though success is a reality, its effects are temporary. You get hungry even though you've just eaten. What is happiness? It's the moment before you realize you need more happiness. It's that moment, right? That split second before you realize that now you're going to have to go out and find a little bit more happiness. And it's gone just like that. I mean, when I I first heard that, I felt like I'd been kicked in the gut. I hate it. And yet that is exactly how my fragmented heart works. And, And you've been there, haven't you? Right? At some point. I mean, even just a silly example, like, have you ever been enjoying a really good meal? And before you even finish eating, you're already beginning to fantasize about the next great meal. Have you had that? I know you have. Don't lie. It's, we all do. Or, or maybe, like, you've been just waiting, saving up for some big purchase. Kids, maybe, maybe some of you have done this. You've saved everything that you possibly can. You've got it there. You're standing at the checkout. Finally, you've got it. And even in that moment, you begin thinking, what's the next big purchase? What's the next thing to buy just a little bit more happiness? Or for me, one of the, one of the areas that I am, I'm notorious, you can ask Kelly about this, uh, in a couple of weeks we are going on our family vacation, and I know myself well enough to know that while I'm there having all this fun with my family, I will begin planning the next vacation. Right? Just thinking, how, how can I grab just a little more happiness? How can I get just a little bit more? Or, or maybe, maybe for you it's some milestone as a parent or some great success at work. Just enough to give you a taste before you realize how desperate you are for more. 
that insatiable hunger that causes us to look anywhere, to do anything, to squeeze out every last drip of happiness before we inevitably realize that it's never going to be enough. There's got to be a better way. Something real, something lasting, something that isn't so fickle and fleeting. So what about joy? Joy's a little different, right? I mean, yeah, there's some overlap. But there's something unique about joy, isn't there? Joy lasts. Joy doesn't exist simply for the moment. Joy is a way of life. Joy can exist even when happiness doesn't, strangely enough. G.K. Chesterton once said, joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. And if there's one thing we learn from our text this morning, this great story, it's that joy changes everything. Now, this year together, we've been going through the whole Bible, right? Kind of rushing through, looking, looking at kind of this broad overview. Uh, and this week, believe it or not, marks the, the very end of the Old Testament historical books. So next week, we'll be on to the, the poetry sections already. But we've taken these last few weeks here in this little tiny book of Nehemiah to really hone in on this often forgot story of the people's restoration. Uh, For more than a hundred years, God's people were little more than rubble gazers. But in this story, we've seen them become wall builders. God called this man, Nehemiah, right, to, to come and be a part of leading that restoration process. And that just in 52 days, right, if you have been with us, in 52 days, they rebuilt these walls, providing once again a place of security and protection there as a people. We saw last week that it wasn't just about the walls, right? It was also about the restoration of the weak. But Nehemiah also worked to, to restore the oppressed and, and the downtrodden there in their community. Because restored people restore others. But God isn't done with Nehemiah yet, nor is he done with his people. Because their hearts still need restoring. And God will do it, and he will do it through a little thing called joy. Joy changes everything. And so as we look at this story in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to ask three questions of this story. Where do we get joy? What do we do with joy? And what does joy do with us? First, where do we get joy? Okay, so chapter 8 now, again, if if you've been with us... Try to catch us back up. If you haven't been here, I'll try to give enough detail so you understand where we're at in the story of Nehemiah. But chapter 8, verse 1, picks up right about a week after the official completion of the wall. Okay, they worked on it for 52 days. It's done. They've had a week off. And now chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And, the, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. So you got a picture, right? This mass of God's people, they're all gathered as one person, it says. It's talking about their, their unity. And they're there at the, the water gate. You can kind of see 
the, the dotted line again, that's, that's the temple or the, the walls that they built, the temples at the top. They all gathered in this large section near the water gate. And there, this guy named Ezra, which might be a familiar name for you, but we haven't seen his name yet in Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra is kind of the, the main character, the focal point of the book before Nehemiah. So there's Ezra and Nehemiah in your Old Testament. Those two kind of go together. But now their stories begin to intersect, Ezra and Nehemiah's. So Ezra, he's, he's this scribe slash priest, basically. Uh, and the people ask Ezra to read the law to them. Most likely the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And so everyone there, Men, women, young and old, says everyone who could understand. In many ways, right, how we try to do it here, right? We're young and old kids. You're included here. You would have been included there to to understand, to grab onto this. And they all listened from morning until midday, it says. I thought my sermons were long. And it says that they were all attentive. What must that be like? And they didn't, they didn't just read the Bible, okay? They're not just going through reading, you know, verse 1, verse 2. That's, that's not exactly what's happening here. Uh, they do, again, what we try to do here every week. It says in verse 7 that the, the Levites helped the people understand the law. In verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense or explained the meaning so that the people understood the reading. And how do the people respond when they hear God's law. Joy, right? It's a message about joy. Wrong. They weep. I mean, for many of them, this would have likely been the first time they'd ever heard God's laws. There, as they're being restored as a people and coming face to face with their own sins, they weep. They realize how much they've rebelled against their God how far they have run from him, and so they weep. And yet Nehemiah and Ezra, there together, tell the people in verse 9, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. End of verse 10, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What a gift this is. I mean, the people, right, they they were right to weep over their sins and and the guilt of all that they had done. But God says to them essentially, nope, nope, not now. Not now. Now is the time to celebrate. Now, Now is the time to find your strength by finding your joy in me. I love that God does that there in this story. Where do we get joy? Joy is a gift from God. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't even just sort of try really super hard to be joyful. Joy happens when God says, here you go. Here it is. It's just purely grace. And it's joy in God that we long for, right? That's, that's the idea in this text. It's not joy in their circumstances, right? Even the great circumstances of having these rebuilt walls. I mean, truly, though, their circumstances there in this moment is causing them to weep because they know how inadequate they are. It's not simply joy in their circumstances. It's a joy that comes from him and is centered on him. Anything less 
is fleeting and unsatisfying. Now, joy doesn't mean that we're going to be glowing all the time or, or bubbly and ecstatic. Thank goodness, right? That's not, that's not the, uh, the idea here, okay? But this, this kind of joy that is being taught, joy is, is strength from God, it's saying. It's a, it's a commitment to view our lives and our circumstances from his perspective. It's a resolute trust that no matter what happens, the God who loves me is still good and he's still in control. That's joy. And all those other things that we run to, you know, to give us those those moments of happiness, you know, it's not that they're bad things. In fact, most of them oftentimes are really good things. They're just not ultimate things. Former Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, uh, he was an atheist who became a, a, one of the most influential Christians of the 1900s. He writes, what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. Do you follow that? The reason, he's, he's saying the reason happiness is so fleeting in those other things is that those other things aren't really what we were looking for in the first place. You with me? Okay. It wasn't money you wanted. You thought you wanted money, but what you really wanted was just, you know, security, right? Or it wasn't, it wasn't sex you wanted. You thought maybe that was it, but it was really intimacy. Or it wasn't that new toy uh, that you, you thought it was, but it was, you know, satisfaction, or not the, the approval of the people around you that you were so desperate, but just simply significance. The reason those things, even really, really good things, don't give us the lasting satisfaction that we're so desperate for is that they were never meant to give us that lasting satisfaction. Ultimate security, ultimate significance and intimacy and satisfaction only come from the God who made us. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Okay, so joy is a gift from God. But how do I get the gift, right? We all want more of it, don't we? Well, if you want more joy, right? That's all of us. Pursue God, not joy. And I make that mistake so often. I mean, I, I pursue happiness with every fiber of my being, I, and I simply run from one series of disappointments to the next. If you live your life in pursuit of joy, you get nothing. If you live your life in pursuit of God, you get both. If you want more joy, seek God. I mean, that's what we see the, the Israelites doing there in that place, right? They're, they're asking Ezra, come and, and read the law so that we can understand and that we can know this God, know what he expects of us and know how we can seek him and, and follow him. And, and that's what they do, right? Love his book, listen to it, read it, seek to understand it, build your life upon it. And remind yourself, I mean, I, I've got to do that when I, when I feel this urge, right, this sort of gravitational pull to all of these other things. I, honestly, I'm trying to learn just to talk to myself a little bit more. I recently read that 
no one is more influential in your life than you are because you're always talking to yourself. I mean, true, right? Think about it. Maybe not out loud, but that, that voice inside your head never shuts up, right? So what are you telling yourself? And so the idea is that, again, I'm not good at this. I'm trying to learn to discipline myself to say when I'm gravitating towards those things or when I think this moment, this purchase or this vacation or this restful day or whatever it is, I think it's going to give me my habit. I say, Nathan, it's a good thing. Enjoy it. God gave it to you to enjoy it. Enjoy it. But don't ask that thing to give you what only God can give you. I've got to tell myself that. Instead, we ask God to give us what only God can give us. We ask him for the gift of joy. Ask him for it. This is is his gift to his people. And what unfolds in the rest of this story, for for the people of Israel there in that place, is nothing short of revival. I mean, a spiritual awakening just sort of bubbles up here for those people. Ask God to do for you and for us what he does for them. And this joy, it changes everything. So where do we get it? We get it from God. What do we do with joy? What do we do with it? That's the next question. So again, back to the text here, verse 10. Um, You know, they just said, quit your whining, basically. Stop crying. Verse 10, then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat. Okay, that's like their way of saying, you know, eat, eat the best part of the meat. Okay? I know it sounds a little weird. Eat the fat. That's, that was their lingo. And drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In verse 12, it says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So Nehemiah, right there, he, he tells these people, they, they're still wiping the tears of their grief from their eyes. And he says, go out, kill the fattened calf, eat the choicest cuts, Open your best bottles of wine. Share with anyone who has need. And party. And, and they do. For seven days, they feast and celebrate together. Seven days. What do we do with joy? We celebrate. We party. James Houston writes, For Christians who live closely with God... Life is like a festival. And yet there are so many joyless Christians, aren't there? I mean, those who who tend to read stories like this, and no matter what the words say, in their minds they pencil little frowns on everybody's faces. And they said that they partied, but, you know, didn't really. Prefer to think that the the wine was really Welch's. They, They like mourning and weeping over dancing. The gloominess of the Lord is our strength. (laughs) Get over yourselves. I mean, just stop and think for a moment. Think of what our God has done. 
That the God who made us crossed heaven and earth simply to be with us. He sent his own son who, who died the death that we deserved and rose again, defeating all that is ugly and broken and, and sinful and death-filled that we deserve. Took it all. Think of all that we have to celebrate. Our God rebuilt their walls and he restores our hearts. This is what God does. If you're, if you're a joyless Christian, and you know who you are, right? Grumpy, whiny, bitter, and if you don't know who you are, everybody else does. <laughs> I mean, if that, if that describes you, honestly, God help you. Have, have you met the giver of all joy, the creator of all things beautiful, the redeemer of all of our hopes? Joy is offered to us, and just thinking for a moment of what God has done, how can we not celebrate? Gary Thomas writes, he says, if we had a little more joy in our churches today, we might have a lot more strength. Of course, there's a place for weeping and repentance and sobriety, of course, but clearly at times such responses come up short. Sometimes call for celebrating, rejoicing, dancing, singing, feasting, laughing, and even playing. So what do we do with joy? Celebrate God every chance you get. You are one of the redeemed. One of the restored. You've met Jesus. Remember remember him, right? The guy constantly accused of being a little too much of a partier? That's our Savior. Celebrate And again, it isn't just joy, it's joy of the Lord. It's not just celebrate, it's celebrate God every chance. Celebration is a spiritual discipline. Celebrate God every chance you get. Every moment, every milestone, every, I mean, celebrate Mother's Day. Every one of us has a mom, right? Every one of us ought to be thankful for the life that we've been given. And celebrate God baby dedications and birthdays and baptisms and weddings and anniversaries, all of these milestones. Celebrate, um, you know, the, 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 the big things, the little things. Celebrate answered prayer. Celebrate the daily faithfulness of God in your life. Make a big deal out of these things and let your kids see it and let your neighbors see it and, and let the people around us know why we celebrate. We just can't help it. Look at, look at what our God has done. How can we not? The joy of the Lord is our strength. And one of the great parts here, the more we celebrate God, the more we experience this joy. And joy changes everything. So joy is a gift. What do we do with joy? We celebrate. But what does joy do with us? Look again at that phrase. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, when when I hear that, typically, I I, I kind of jump automatically. It's saying that the joy of the Lord is my strength in the sense that it makes me strong. It makes me powerful, right? To overcome. And and I think there's some truth to that, but that's actually a different Hebrew word for for strength. Uh, This Hebrew word is the one maoz. And everywhere else in the Bible, it's translated as fortress, or refuge, or protection. I love that. The joy of the Lord is our fortress. 
It's our home. It's our, it's our place of rest and, and safety and security. Not the walls, right? They just finished building their security. But God says, no, joy in me is your security. It's not our health. It's not our bank accounts. It's joy in God that gives us security. That gives us rest. And it's this security then that changes us. When we feel secure, it changes everything. So what does joy do with us? Three things here. First, joy in the Lord provides our security. We said that. It just just makes us feel safe. It makes us feel like we are protected and and secure. I mean, what, what calms a child's fears more than anything? And maybe you've had that moment, right? The kids wake up screaming in the middle of the night and you run in there. Nothing calms their fears like a loving parent sitting on their bed whispering, you know what, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. And when I've done that for for David or Eden, I mean, just to, you can watch the fear melt off their faces as the relief settles in. You can see it in their face. I mean, as if they're, they're somehow saying, yeah, you know what? Maybe it is going to be okay. Maybe somebody else is in control. Maybe somebody else is going to care for me and take care of me. Maybe it's going to be just fine. And that relief turns into joy, doesn't it? And to think for a moment that our God, the God who made us and everything else, does that for us. That he comes to us in our moment of fear or anxiety or weakness. He says, you know what, it's going to be okay. I'm in charge. It's going to be okay. And if that's true, what, what do we have to fear? Yeah, we live in a scary world, but what do we have to fear really? And not just fear, but who do we have to impress? If that's, if that's our relationship with, with the God of heaven, who do we have to impress? And, and what do we have to go get, right, to go grab at that God hasn't already promised to us in Jesus? Where do you find your security? And this joy, this security, it also fuels our repentance. Now, chapter 8 here, right, we've been talking about, that's really the climax of Nehemiah. It's the restoration of their hearts. And there's several chapters that follow yet. This is our last week in Nehemiah, so sorry about that. Um, But the rest of the book is really about what happens when God restores people's hearts. It's what happens when this joy overtakes us in such a way. What are the things that that go on? How does the joy get worked out practically in us? Let me give a couple examples. In chapter 9, for instance, okay, chapter 9 is two weeks after the close of their seven-day party of celebration. And in chapter 9, they fast, they dress in sackcloth, and they cover themselves in dirt. And here they weep. Chapter 9 is a long chapter of this prayer of repentance. It says that they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. It's a long chapter, a long confession. They had a lot of sins to confess. It goes on and on. And there is certainly a place for weeping. But when we find our joy in the Lord, our weeping isn't one of despair. Even our weeping, even our lowest moments are moments of hope. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And this joy, as we learn 
to repent, right? That means turning away from our sins. Just confess them to God and to turn away from say that these sins, they, they're not what I want anymore. This, this is what I want. But this, this joy, when we experience this joy, that the temptations of sin seem more and more hollow all the time. We realize that they're, they're promising to give us things that they cannot possibly deliver. I mean, why would I, why would I devote my life to cheap substitutes when infinite joy is offered to me? And the more we repent, the more we turn from our sins, confident that we have a Savior, Jesus, who loves us and forgives us and restores us, the more we feel that joy. It's just this constant cycle. So do you repent? Do you turn from your sins with joyful expectation? The more joy, the more our loves get reordered. That's the third thing. Joy really does change everything. So if we were to move then from chapter 9 into, into chapter 10, the practical effects of their joy in chapter 10 is really overwhelming. It shows their incredible commitment to the house of God over and over again, their, their dedication to God's house, to his temple. And it shows this outpouring of generosity, these reordered loves. Let me read a few of these verses here. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. Again, these are all effects of the work of joy that God has done in them. Chapter 10, verse 35. We obligate ourselves, the people are saying, to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And it just goes on and on. This is the, the first of our dough, the first of our contributions, our fruit, our wine, our oil, a tenth of everything. And it all builds to this climax at the end of verse 39. It says, we will not neglect the house of our God. I mean, think about that again in the context of the story. These people who had almost nothing, right, because of the famine, because of the, the oppression, These people who had really, up to just a couple of months ago, had almost forgotten about their God as their city lay there in ruins. But these people who have now experienced the restoration of God in their lives have been restored physically, socially, spiritually, and they just can't help but give. Joy reorders our lives. We don't live for stuff anymore. For leisure or those self-made attempts at security or whatever bite-sized attempts at happiness that we live for. We know better, don't we? God is the one who keeps us secure. He's the one who offers us satisfaction and so much better than we could possibly go out and find ourselves. We've probably seen this, haven't we? I mean, have you ever known a really generous person? Not just generous with money, but generous in their their time and their affection, a truly generous person. I mean, they tend to be some of the happiest people I've ever met. I'm sure we've all known really stingy people too, right? Whether spenders or hoarders, but it's, it's all focused on them. Sometimes they seem to be some of the most unsatisfied people, always looking for more. You see, joy pushes us towards generosity 
But generosity, just like every one of these things, generosity pushes us towards greater joy. And if you've, if you've never been generous, I mean really generous, you know, not expecting something in return, right? Not just a gift exchange, but a true generosity. If you've never been generous, then you might not really understand what I'm talking about, honestly. In fact, you might even think I'm kind of just sort of lying, you know, making it up, making a plug for the church or something like that. But how would you know? I mean, don't knock generosity until you've tried it. Truthfully. Someone great once said, it's better to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That word blessed is similar in the language to the word happy. It's happier to be the one giving than the one getting. But why do so many of us so easily believe that Jesus was lying when he said it? It's more blessed to give than to receive. And joy is offered to us. And notice this in the story as well. Um, Their generosity there, it wasn't without purpose. It says it was for the house of their God, for the center of their worship, for the the place where the the poor were cared for, where community thrived, uh, for the advancement of God's kingdom. We We don't have a temple today. And yet the Apostle Paul refers to the church as the household of God. Well, at Christ Community Church, we don't pass an offering plate, but we do believe that. Yeah, yeah, right? We say it just about every week, don't we? Uh, we, we giving is an important part of worship. We, we say that. We don't pass an offering plate, but we, we believe in, in giving and, and generosity. And, and friends, if you're, not, if you're not generous, I mean, you're, just, you're missing out, truthfully. And I could, I could give a whole list of reasons to be generous and specifically to be generous to the local church. But the simplest is just for your, even just for your own joy. We were created in the image of God, right? And God is the, is the greatest outpour ever, right? He created everything out of nothing and he poured out his own life to redeem sinful people like me. He's, he's the most generous. And we're, we're made to be like him and so it is in our DNA to be generous. If you're not generous... I mean, I don't feel bad for us as a church. God's going to take care of his church, truthfully. I feel bad for you. I mean, again, don't, don't be, I don't mean to like, you know, be a jerk about it, but that's, that's just kind of the reality. I mean, God does amazing things through his church and you're a spectator instead of a, a, a player in the game. This is what God calls us to. And so many of you live this out so beautifully. We have such a generous church. It's so exciting to see what God continues to do in and through us as we faithfully love his bride, the church. Give generously and unleash joy. Okay, so don't we long for this, all of us, this joy thing? I I do. I, I want it so badly. I want it in my life and in my home and with my family. I want it in our church. I want it everywhere. And I've shared with you all plenty of times, right? You know that my personality, I tend to be a little bit more on the depressive and anxious side of things. It's just, that's how I'm wired. And so often for me, my experience of happiness is so similar to Don Draper's, right? That it's simply that split second, that moment before I wake up and realize, wow, I gotta go get more happiness. But I don't want that. 
I don't, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to run from one series of disappointments to the next. I want joy. I want the joy of God to be my refuge, to be my home, to be the place where I live and thrive. And I, I want it now, too. I don't want to wait for it. I mean, C.S. Lewis, I love this. He says, joy is the serious business of heaven. But that doesn't mean it's something we have to wait for. Sure, our joy will be complete. But this is a life that Jesus offers to us now, that we begin to experience this joy in him now. I mean, it's even part of why Jesus came. I mean, Jesus himself said, he said, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And Jesus purchased our joy with his blood. And through forgiveness in him, through the restoration that he offers, we get to begin to experience this joy. And our joy is God's glory. This book is about joy. This life is about joy. This church, I hope, is about joy. More lasting than mere pleasure. More satisfying than mere leisure. Deeper than just happiness. And Jesus, our restorer, offers it to us. Will we receive his joy? Joy changes everything. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I do want this so bad. I want to experience it for me and my family. I want to experience it together for us as a people. God, I want us. I I long for it. So God, I pray that you would continue to give us this gift of joy. That in our understanding and knowledge of what you have done for us, Lord Jesus, that we would be a people who rejoice, that can't help but celebrate your continued work in our lives. Lord Jesus, do that work in us now. And God, I pray that for those who feel um, just deeply burdened and weighed down, God, for those who feel like joy is so far out of reach. God, I pray that you would comfort them, that you would be gracious to them, that they would find the community and the help that they need, and that, God, you would bless us, God, just with an experience of your presence and the joy that comes with it. And so now, Lord Jesus, as we worship you together this morning, give us your joy.